The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We are going to go back to Esther this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the, the, uh, the passage is going to be on the screen behind me as I speak through it. Uh, or you can grab one of those Bibles at the back. Um, we are in week three of this epic story of Esther. And just to give you a bit of a recap of where we've been for the last few weeks, um, firstly, there, there's, we introduced to this king of Persia. His name is Ahasuerus. And he was seeking a new wife after he deposed uh, the, his previous wife, Queen Vashti, because she didn't do what he wanted her to do. And so a call went out to all of the provinces, the entire kingdom of, of Persia, to seek young, beautiful virgins to basically come and audition for the role as queen. And the Jewish girl named Esther, one of the, she was one of the, uh, the, the, the exiles who were brought out, of, brought out of Judah. She was chosen to be queen. And we were introduced to Esther last week. We looked at Esther and her cousin Mordecai. And what we're going to learn in the weeks to come is that Esther's going to become the hero that God will use to save his people. Today, in Esther chapter 3, we're going to get introduced to another character named Haman. Haman is the antagonist of the story, the enemy of the Jews. Haman the Agagite. And this part of the story, uh, Esther has been queen for about five years at this stage. So just to let you know, from last week to this week, we've jumped forward about five years. So let's just walk through it. Be- beginning in verse 1, with the introduction of this man, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, that's really important, that Haman is called the Agagite. Because Agag was actually a king of the Amalekites, and Agag was one of the serious enemies of King Saul, the very first king of Israel. And so there's this history of tension between Israel and the Agagites that goes all the way back to their very first king, King Saul. But it actually goes even further than that because King Agag was actually king of the Amalekites. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 17, the Amalekites attacked God's people just after they left Egypt, just after they were saved out of slavery in Egypt. And so Israel and the Amalekites have this long history, this long tension between the two of them. They have been enemies. So when the writer of Esther writes the story and says, Haman, the Agagite, the readers are supposed to go, oh, he's the enemy. We know the part that he's going to play here. So Ahasuerus promoted Haman in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. We're not told why uh, Haman was promoted to this position, but it seems that this man, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is now the second most uh, powerful man in the kingdom of Persia. But then, in verse 2, we see how Mordecai is going to become a rock in Haman's shoe. It says, but Mordecai, this is Mordecai, who's Esther's cousin, would not bow down and pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? 
When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen, they told Haman, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them that he was a Jew. So here's Mordecai disobeying the king's command. And we're not told why. And the reason why doesn't seem to be that important to the author because not much is made of that. It could be kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who decided they were not going to bow down to the, to the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It might be like that, but we're not too sure. What matters is that he didn't bow down. That's the point. And Haman caught wind of it. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying, homage to, uh, paying him homage, he was filled with rage. Now, pay, pay attention to what it was that enraged Haman. It wasn't that the king's orders were being disobeyed, but rather that someone wasn't treating him how he wanted. Someone wasn't stroking Haman's ego, and this upset Haman. You see, Haman, and we'll learn this as we go, Haman is really into Haman. He loves himself. He promotes himself to everyone around him, and he really needs everyone to get on the Haman train. And this is what happens when someone drifts into the center of the universe. They need everyone to around them to always acknowledge their importance. And when they don't, it enrages them. They get furious when that doesn't happen. And this rage sets Haman on the path of destruction. He wants to destroy Mordecai. How dare he not treat me like I want to be treated? But not just Mordecai. He wants everyone who's ever been associated with Mordecai to be destroyed. It says that when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. His ego was that bruised that just simply dealing with Mordecai would not be enough. That would not quench his rage. That would not satisfy his thirst for revenge. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. And with that thought, with that plan, the great point of tension for the story is set in motion. God's people everywhere were now in the crosshairs of the second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom. His rage is fueling a meticulous plan to eradicate the world of God's people. Reading from verse 7, In the first month, the month of Nisan, in, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, where it was cast for each day in each month. And it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So Haman's got this plan. He wants to destroy God's people. And just to get the ball rolling, he, as was ancient custom, he constantly consulted the pur, which was basically like lots, these dice that were used in those days to determine favorable days for certain actions and activities. So these lots were, were cast during the first month of the calendar year, Nisan, which is our March. And the lot landed on the 12th month of Adar, which is our February, which means that Haman had 12, almost 12 months to wait until his plans would come to fruition. And that timing there, that 12 months, or almost 12 months, 
That is critical for the overall storyline. We're going to see how, how perfectly this plays out in, as, the, as the chapters roll on. But this is one of those moments where even though God is not mentioned, he is definitely at work there. Haman's rage was steering him full steam ahead towards a plan to destroy the Jews. And his plan fully relied on the roll of these dice. But what he actually hasn't taken into account here is that Mordecai's God is the one who is in control. Yes, Haman is clever, but he's using loaded dice. These dice belong to the Lord, and God designed his dice to land on the 12th month. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God is infinite in power, infinite in presence, infinite in knowledge. There is nothing that God cannot do, big or small. The Apostle Paul makes this quite thoroughly, makes this thoroughly clear. Speaking of Jesus in Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17, he says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. So that's everything. Comprehensive way of saying everything. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And it says, he is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So it's not just that God created all things and then sat back to see what would happen. It's not that God wound up the the clock of creation and then set it to go and just to watch to see how it played out. No, God's fingerprints are all over this story. This story, these dice, Haman, everything here, is being held together by God. And before this story is done, we will see God's plans come to fruition, not despite Haman's plans, but through Haman's plans. When Haman thinks that he's chosen the date for the annihilation of God's people, it's actually that God has picked the date for the deliverance of his people from Haman's hand. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that God cannot do. There is nowhere that God isn't. Everything that God does is perfectly good in its timing and ethic, and there is absolutely, and that is absolutely and objectively true on all occasions, everywhere. Whatever we faced last week or whatever we faced this week, we can rest assured that there is a God that he is sovereign, and that his plan to establish his kingdom here on earth is the best thing that could ever happen to us. But Haman is completely naive of this God, completely unaware that the dice have just revealed when his plans would actually unravel. Nevertheless, he proceeds with a plan. Reading from verse 8, Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group, Scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. So notice how Haman there has just projected Mordecai's actions onto every single Jew in all of the provinces. One of them is like this. So all of them must be like this. 
And he goes on to manipulate what we've already seen is a weakness for this king, King Ahasuerus. See, King Ahasuerus, he's insecure. He struggles to make decisions for himself. He struggles uh, to, to know how to make decisions or to think for himself. And so Haman takes full advantage of that. He says, it is not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, you might be familiar with the character Grima Wormtongue. He's the one who gets in the ear of King Theoden. So King Theoden is there, and Grima Wormtongue is always kind of on his shoulder, on his hip, poisoning his brain, poisoning his thoughts at every single moment. This is the kind of image that comes to mind when I look at Haman and, and King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is, is there, and, and Haman is just having his way with this king. Ahasuerus, you want the best for your kingdom, right? You don't want lawbreakers in your kingdom, do you? I should think not. Well, king, if you're as passionate as your kingdom as I am, then make a law that authorizes this entire people's destruction. And just to show you how invested I am in your kingdom, I'm going to fund this myself. I'm going to put in 375 tons, that's 10,000 talents of silver from my own purse just to achieve this. Now, that's a lot of silver, 10,000 talents, 375 tons. I did some research on this this week, and here's what I learned. If two full-size blue whales boarded a Boeing 757-200, the combined weight of those whales on that aircraft would be the amount of silver that Haman gave to the king, that Haman used to, to eradicate the Jews. That's how much, that's how heavy that is. Now, if you want to know what it's like to take to, to uh, fly a Boeing 757-200 with two blue whales, you can go and talk to Rob Ross about that. He's our Qantas pilot here. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever had two full-size blue whales on your plane, Rob. I hope not. But just in case you did, that's what it would be like. And so on hearing this, the king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. It's interesting there, again, that the text reminds us of Haman's vintage. He is the enemy of God's people. Then the king told Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The king doesn't even stop to ask what ethnic group Haman is talking about. He just hands him a blank check. And I wonder if Haman could have ever hoped that this situation could have been better than this. He now has the authority of the king without the interference of the, from the king. He now has unlimited scope to do as he pleases. So from verse 12, this diabolical plan is set in motion. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Notice how thorough that is. There is not going to be a pocket of the Persian Empire that doesn't hear Haman's words with the king's authority in their own language. And that includes 
the Jews who had returned to Judea from exile. They were at this stage in the throes of trying to rebuild the temple and the city walls and basically rebuilding their lives back in Jerusalem. They were going to be affected by this, as well as every other Jew in the entire empire. Then verse 13 shows us just how comprehensive and final Haman wants us to be. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces, telling the officials, and pay attention to this, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jewish people. Like, he, they could have just said destroy. That would have been enough. But not just destroy, but kill. And not just kill, but annihilate. Bring their existence to an end. All of the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. If you're in the habit of underlining or highlighting words in your Bible, I encourage you to highlight those words because those words are going to be reversed back on Haman's plans later on. Essentially, this edict stated that if you lived, if you were living in one of the provinces of the Persian Empire, then on the 13th day of Adar, you had the responsibility to attack anyone you knew who was Jewish and to destroy and to kill and to annihilate them, and you would be free to take their things. It wasn't just legal to do so, it was illegal not to do so, not to play your part in erasing God's people from the face of the earth. And this is the importance of the book of Esther to the whole storyline of the Bible. If Haman is successful, then every single one of God's people will be annihilated, and God's covenant, which promised a ruler from the tribe of Judah and a son of David, one who would come to be a blessing to the whole world, who would bless all the families on earth, that covenant, God's covenant promises, would be stopped in their tracks, and all of his promises would come untrue. This is the weight that is going to be placed on Esther's shoulders, and this is the weight that is on this story. And so in verse 14, the, this unstoppable edict had, had its start. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by the royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. It's unstoppable because a royal command meant that it could not be revoked. The destruction and the death and the annihilation of God's people appear to be as certain as a boulder going down a hill. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, while the city of Susa was thrown in confusion. And that's the end of chapter 3, and that's as far as we're going to go in our text for today. But there's a couple of things that I want us to, to look at, a couple of things that I want us to draw out of this, ways that this applies to us, way that we, ways that this is actually relevant for us today. The, the first point is, is big picture on a world scale. The second point is personal. So the first point is on God's sovereignty. Here we have one man carefully planning the end of God's people. He's clever. He's careful. He's using the politics of the day, and he is carefully orchestrating something 
that has left the entire kingdom in confusion and no doubt leaving many people in dismay. But he's doing this in front of the sovereign God of the universe who is infinite in power and wisdom and presence. And to merely flick Haman away like a crumb would be no problem at all for God. Maybe you've been watching on in confusion and dismay of the news of what's happening around our world. The war in Ukraine with, with the war from Russia and Ukraine, the, the tension that's going on between China and Taiwan, and so many other things that we could mention. And these things could cause us to, de- to feel a great deal of stress and anxiety. But let's just take note for a moment that this is all being done in front of the sovereign God of the universe. Regardless of how things play out in the near future, God is still on the throne. Jesus is still on his throne, and that will never change. The good news for us is that Jesus is king, and no ruler, no authority, no president, no prime minister, no government official can hold a candle to him. God will ultimately establish his eternal kingdom, and he will uphold his perfect standard of justice. And all of mankind will be brought before God, and they will have to face him as their judge, and they will have to give an account. And for those of us who are in Christ, we should rejoice at that, because Jesus has already absorbed our judgment on our behalf, the judgment that we deserve, and he will hold that perfect line of justice, that perfect standard of justice upon every other person. If you're here and you're not a Christian, the kindest thing that I can say to you this morning is that if you don't love Jesus, then you are against him. I just want to point that out. You might not think of it like that, but that is objectively true. And we beg you, if that's you, to put your faith in Jesus. Don't run from the judge. Cast yourself upon his loving mercy. You might not think that you're good enough to do so. You might not think that you're good enough to to put your faith in Jesus, and you'd be right. None of us are. We are sinners deserving God's wrath, but he is full of loving kindness and mercy, and he forgives all of the sins of all people who put their trust in him. And this leads us to the second observation, which zooms out from that grand scale of world politics and all that, and zooms all the way down into our hearts. You see, Esther 3 gives us a really clear anatomy of sin. It presents for us what sin does to the heart. You see, sin is not just the bad things that we do. Sin is an attempt to tear God off his throne and climb onto it ourselves in order to try and be in charge. Sin is standing in front of God on his throne and saying, God, you are on my chair. You have no right to tell me how to live my life. And while we might never actually articulate it like that, that is what is proclaimed every single time we disobey God. We're saying, no, I actually know what's right for me. I'm the one who should be in charge. I'm the one who should be determining my life right now. You see, it would be a massive mistake for us, for us to look at Haman and to conclude that he is totally different to us. 
It's an error to read about sinful people like him and believe that we're not capable of the same kind of sin in our hearts. It is foolish to assume that our sin will be diluted before the judge because of people like Haman. Now that's not to say that any of us or all of us are only a couple of steps away from planning genocide. I really hope that's not the case. I hope there's no genocidal maniacs in our church this morning. But for people like us with sin in our hearts, we've, we've got the same sin in our hearts like Haman does. The problem with Haman's heart is the exact same problem with our hearts. You see, for Haman, he drifted too close to the center of his own universe. His world became about him, and that's the birthplace of our sin. When our hearts decide that the world revolves around us. This is why Haman provides a great example for what happens when we drift into the center of the universe. And what we can see in our text is, amongst a lot of other things, there's at least three ways that sin has had its way in Haman's life. Firstly, sin degrades. When sin is having its way in our hearts, we stop treating others with the dignity and the value that they have as image bearers. Notice how Haman was offended at Mordecai's actions, but it was repugnant to him that only Mordecai should bear the penalty. The Jews, who were caught up in Haman's schemes, had no value to him except as fuel for his revenge. One of the ways that a sinful heart manifests itself is when we degrade those around us. How often do we forget that the people that we rub shoulders with on a daily basis are not just some kind of means to our ends, but actually bear the very image of God, of the God of the universe. As image bearers, they have the most important purpose and function out of all of creation, which is to glorify God. And they have infinite value and worth because the Creator made them by imprinting His nature onto them. That is what is true, but sin causes us to degrade those around us, to use them to keep us in the center. The second thing that we see is that sin self-justifies. Did you notice that when Haman went to the king, he didn't actually report things how they went down. He had to actually exaggerate these. What happened? One person didn't bow down to Haman. But how did he report it? He says, King, there is an entire ethnic group who don't follow your rules and do their own thing, and they are a problem for you. The reason he had to exaggerate the problem to the king was because his response was a massive overreaction. He had to exaggerate the problem so that his actions would be justified. How often do we have to exaggerate our problems to justify our actions? How often do we cast ourselves as both the hero and the victim of every single retelling of our stories? How often do we let ourselves off the hook for things that we don't tolerate in others? How often do we allow other people to bear our judgment for things that we don't want to be judged about ourselves? That's self-justifying behavior, and it is birthed from the exact same kind of heart that existed in Haman. 
The third thing there is that sin blinds. When Haman saw Mordecai not bowing down to him, he might have thought to himself, Mordecai is going to pay for this. But when we think about it, Haman, Haman was the one who had to pay. 375 tons of silver, to be exact. Like, I wonder if Haman looked at, Haman, looked at Mordecai doing that and, think, and thought to himself, that one action there is going to cost me a lot of money. But that cost was actually worth it to him. His sin blinded him to, to the actual cost of his sin. He was willing to pay that if it meant that he could get revenge over Mordecai. And sin blinds us to the realities of the personal cost of our sin. Sin has this nasty way of twisting and warping logic so that we find ourselves saying things and thinking things and doing things that we would never do otherwise. And then if we could look at those things objectively, we would say, that is foolishness, that is crazy. But when sin gets in our hearts and when we permit it in our hearts, it twists that, it, it changes us, and we start to think that things that, like that are, are totally justified. You see, the problem for Haman was that he made peace with his sin. The problem for Haman was that he made room for sin in his heart. He drifted into the, into the center of the universe, and you and I face the exact same challenge every single day. You know you've drifted close to the center of the universe when you start getting frustrated at people who are driving too slowly in front of you. You know you've drifted too close to the center of the universe when someone's tragedy someone else's tragedy, you're upset because it act, that inconveniences you. You know you've drifted towards the center when, when you agree that these rules are good, except they don't apply to me at certain times. <clears throat> the rules are good, no doubt about that, but I, and other people should follow them, but I'm special and my life is different and I should be the exception. We might make the mistake of thinking that because we're not as bad as Haman, then we don't really have a huge problem on our hands. But the problem of sin is not just how big it is or how severe it is. The problem is also in the fact that when we, is when we make peace with our sin. It is, a folly to, to, uh, to, it is folly to permit sin in our hearts. It is foolishness to cultivate it. Just before Cain murdered Abel, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And that word crouching kind of, it's like an animal that's ready to pounce, like a tiger that is sitting on your front lawn waiting for you to open the door and step out so that it can eat you. Treat sin as such. Don't make peace with it. Don't take the tiger a snack. Don't permit it to stay in your lawn. This is why God said to Cain, but you must rule over it. Don't make peace with the tiger outside your door. Get a shotgun and shoot it in the face. Don't make peace with your sin. Paul said something very similar in Romans 8.13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. In other words, if you make peace with the sin in your heart, it will kill you. He says, but he then says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
John Owen paraphrases by saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. So how do we do this? How do we go about killing sin in our lives? Well, Paul gives us that answer. In verse 14, he says, For those, for all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. How do we kill sin in our lives? By owning our identity as God's children. At the beginning of uh, his gospel, the Apostle Apostle John wrote that for everyone who receives Jesus, God gave them the right to be children of God. If you are a Christian, it means that you are a child of God, a son or a daughter of God, and that becomes the most defining feature in your life. And, And John, in his gospel, has the audacity that for those who receive Jesus, they have the right to become the children of God. Like, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are entitled to being a son of God or a daughter of God. Now, I find myself uncomfortable saying that. It seems improper. I can't stand entitled people. And here is John saying, you have the right to be the children of God. When you become a Christian, you become one of his children. I'm not making this up. God wrote this. God said this. And if you're one of God's children, then you're one of his heirs, a co-heir with Jesus Christ himself. The reason for this is that by trusting in Jesus, his perfect record of life, his perfect life is credited to your account and our horrific record of sin is transferred to Jesus and then Jesus disposed of that record of sin in the grave and then he triumphed over the grave by rising from the dead three days later so that our sin remains in the grave never to resurface again. That's the gospel. That's the wonderful news of the gospel, that God forgives our sins and he, left them, he put them on Jesus and those sins were left in the grave. God is not going to bring them up again on judgment day and say, well, actually, you did this, 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 and this. No, all of that is on Jesus Christ. That's the wonderful thing that God forgives sins and we can look to Jesus to know that our sins are forgiven. And then we might have the question, though, of, well, what do I do with that ongoing sin that's still in my life? the stuff that I can't seem to shake, the addictions that I have, the the struggles that I walk through, the things that people constantly pull me up on and I constantly have to go, oh, I've done it again. Yes, our sins are removed from us, but that problem of ongoing sin, how do we put that to death? Well, according to Paul, it's by the Spirit. And we... This isn't a a secondary thing. It's not that we go to the gospel to be saved and then something else to be sanctified. The Holy Spirit brings us back to the gospel again. And so the Holy Spirit comes along and says, he says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. How do we kill the sin in our life? It's that the Holy Spirit comes along and says, you know you're a child of God, right? And we go, ah, yeah. I forgot. I remembered like 30 seconds ago, but then I forgot. 
and I needed to be reminded again, that's true. We kill sin by agreeing with the Holy Spirit that we are God's children. And this sin doesn't belong in my heart because of what Jesus has done for me and because of who I am right now. Not who I might be, not who I hope to be. It's not that I have this great aspiration to be one of God's children, so I'm really hoping I can get enough sin out of my life so that I kind of get past that threshold and that at that certain point, God's going to forgive me, God's going to accept me into his family, and I really hope I've got what it takes to get to that day. No. It's that God has forgiven our sins and we are his children, co-heirs with Christ. This is what it means that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He says so, and we agree with it. We say it, and we let that be the key identifying marker for us. Okay, so the next question then is, how or where do we hear the Holy Spirit saying this? Do we wait until we've got a voice in our heads? The answer is that God has written his word for us in our Bibles. If if we're looking to hear the voice and the word of God in your life, it's in here. It's in our Bibles. And we must open our Bibles for ourselves and let the truth of God's word set the truth for our hearts and tell us where we've been wrong and assuming that God doesn't love us anymore. So as an example, and I shared this with our, in our worship vision night on, on Wednesday night, I read Psalm 108 on Wednesday morning where it says in Psalm 108, For your faithful love is higher than the heavens and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit there is testifying that God's love for each one of us is higher than the heavens. There is nothing higher than the heavens except for God's love which is for us. And his faithfulness reaches to the clouds so that when you and I are faithless, which happens a thousand times a day, God is still faithful to us to uphold his promises to us despite our sin. And we kill our sin by saying that along with the Holy Spirit. It's by reading God's word and receiving the truth of the gospel, reading Psalm 108 and other passages like that and saying, when God talks about his love being higher than the heavens, he means it's for me. He's talking about me. He's talking about God's children and I'm one of them. Now, this isn't a magic wand. Reading uh, you know, the, the verse of the day in your email inbox for one minute before you get on with the rest of your day, that will not magic away your dishonesty or your greed or your sexual immorality or your deception or your idolatry or your pride or your arrogance or your boasting or anything like that. The death of sin comes through the day-in, day-out life of letting God's word set the agenda of your life and the posture for your heart. How? Because the Bible is all about God. It is unapologetic in its exaltation of God. According to the Bible, God is the most important and spectacular being in existence. And you and I are not. We are not meant to be at the center of the universe. And every time we find ourselves there, life will be miserable. 
But if we can know that there is a God and he is sovereign and he is perfect and he is the only one who should rightly be at the center of our universe, then we will find ourselves being exactly who he created us to be. God is exalted. God is perfect. God is so wonderful that even he is always exalting himself, not out of pride, but because there's nothing and no one more wonderful to exalt. And it's good for us when he does so because it makes us go, oh, I really shouldn't be on that throne. We open up God's word and we read things like Esther. Or I've been reading Daniel this week and go, wow, I really should not be on that throne. This is the glory of God. He came to earth as a man. He went to the cross and bore our sins and died because of his great love for us. God doesn't win us by kicking us violently off his throne. God wins us by coming to us and losing his power for our sake. When sin comes along and says, you should be at the center of the universe, Jesus comes along ever so gently, he ever so gently displaces us from the center and shows us that he should be there instead. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.